Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello. <laughs> I said that really aggressive. Hello there. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode. But before we do that, I haven't really talked to you about your weekend and what you did now that you're moved in. That is my major update. I am finally out of my old place and into my current place. And I no longer feel, as I mentioned on last week's episode, I no longer feel as much in limbo as I did for like the entire past month. And you know, you know when you're moving is like, not just the week of the move or like when you are packing, but like mentally, even two months in advance, you're just like, oh, I know this thing is coming and it's just like a weight on your shoulders. So that's finally gone. Um, so that's over. And that's kind of my major update. It feels great. The other update, which is coming soon, is later in October, I'm going to hike in the Grand Canyon and with in Sedona with my fam. So I'm Super looking forward to that. I know that's like a dream trip of mine. I really want to go to the Grand Canyon and go hiking and do all the things. Although a friend of mine just went to, this is not in the Grand Canyon, but they went to Zion in Utah and they were showing me pictures and it was just like, why aren't we there all the time? Like, why am I living in the middle of Philadelphia City? Like, Listen, that's your prerogative. <laughs> and not in this cool place. <laughs> I love the city. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love <laughs> it. I'm definitely me. a city person. <laughs> I know you're not at all. But we definitely are. And I I really love it. But I really would love to. I know it's been hard for the last two years. But I really would like to travel more like that. So that's awesome that you're going. It's very exciting. Yeah, I, um, I don't know if many people know this about me. I've talked about it like a long time ago. Um, but my family, pretty much when we do vacations, we are hiking or we are skiing. It's always like very active type stuff. So we've been to a lot of the national parks in the U.S. Um, highly recommend Zion. It is definitely one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. I think it's a lot better than Monument Valley, which is definitely one that gets more like hubbub around it because it's been in so many movies and like so many westerns and stuff. Um, but Zion and Sedona are very similar in that they're like sweeping landscapes and red rocks and just the energy there. I know this is going to sound funny, but like people do go to Sedona because it's apparently like an energy vortex of some kind. Um, I don't know much about that. If you know about it, let me know. That being said, I have been to the Grand Canyon to hike before and I've been to Sedona twice before to hike and, you know, eat there and everything. But if y'all have any recommendations for, uh, Restaurants specifically, <laughs> I'm always down to try a new place. So please send them my way. Super exciting. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. I can't wait to hear about it and live vicariously through you. We're thinking about doing some, a big family trip 
in the future, um, I don't know, relatively soonish, I think, Casey's job might take him to either France or Germany sometime in the next like six-ish months or something. And so we might try to go then, Um, you know, variables depending like vaccine for LED and things like that and risks and all that stuff. I don't even know if she can travel there. I will go with you and Um, be your translator if you go to France. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Elodie would love having Aunt Dana there. She would be all about it. That'd be fun. Oh my God, and we would need a translator. So I'll have my people call your people. We'll talk about this. So, any recommendations for this week? Um, I yeah. So, <laughs> people may know. A couple weeks ago, I posted on my Instagram. Do you have any planner recommendations? Because I'm looking for a new one, right? It's and it's. I think this is the earliest that I think I've talked about this before. Because typically, I will get a new planner for like the start of the new year. Um, but business wise, I think it makes a lot more sense for me to have one for. A 12-month calendar starting in either October or November, December, and then all the way around. So it is the day we are recording. It is supposed to come today. On a lot of people's recommendations, I got the Plum Paper Planner, and you can totally personalize it, which I thought was really cool. But you can add quite literally 80 pages to this planner of like different customizations and stuff. You can do like meal planning, family planning, schedules, things, like all this different stuff, which would have been super cool. But I also wasn't interested in lugging around a dictionary for a planner. So I decided to just add on one thing. (laughs) I'm not good with planners. So that's probably why I'm like, I can't get on board with this. Why don't I just using a Google Drive or Notion or something? But then at the same time, Casey has a Notion for us as a family and he gets mad at me because I never look at it. <laughs> and he's like, why don't you put it in Notion? I'm like, I don't know. I never look at it. <laughs> it all just lives in my head. But like we talked about last week, you have to find a tool that works for you, Christina. <laughs> I know. I know. I got to find the right tool. I do like Notion a lot, but um, but I haven't like, yeah, I need to figure out what works for, for us as a fam. Oh my God. We had a really jam-packed weekend, to be perfectly honest. We had a lot of fun. So we take Elodie, I'll just like run through the whole weekend. It was a lot of family, a lot of fun, a lot of Elodie mixed in. So we went to this music class. We take Elodie to this Mr. John's music class, and you can find him on YouTube if your kids are into it. And he's amazing. Elodie loves it. And he, um, so we do that on Fridays, and then we have a dinner in a playground afterwards with a bunch of her little little friends and parents outside, which is really nice. And then we also had my niece's birthday party, which was really nice and fun. So we got to see some family that we haven't seen in a little while, which was really wonderful. What I did this weekend, which leads to my recommendation, my like a really fun part of this weekend was I got together with some girlfriends of mine. We wanted to do some like fall crafting stuff. I've never been like a Halloween person, like a Halloween decorations person. I'm throwing a a small little family sprinkle for my sister-in-law who's expecting at the end of the month and it's gonna be on Halloween weekend and Elodie's getting really into Halloween she's like talking about what she wants to be and all these different things I'm trying to get into the spirit of Halloween because I've never really cared even as a young kid like I liked going trick-or-treating but I never really cared that much about Halloween I never really ate my Halloween candy like I was just never really that into it um and so now 
I'm trying to get into it for Elodie and so I'm doing all these different crafting. So I went over to my friend's house and we were trying to try, like, we saw so many things on Pinterest that were like, this is so cute. We can do this. And so we were trying to make this like ghost garland thing that's made out of tassels. And we were making them like, why are we failing so so hard at literally just wrapping yarn around a book? Like, how is this going so poorly? The real reason why we got together to craft was for snacks and adult conversation. And so that's what we did. And it was wonderful. And my friend went out to Trader Joe's in the morning and all of the fall stuff was out. And I'm not a tip. I don't typically go to Trader Joe's. It's not like my general grocery store that I go to. It's kind of inconvenient to get to. She went and got a nice little haul. And what she brought back for us to have were these, this amazing pumpkin hummus. And it literally tasted like Oh my god. It tasted like ginger snaps with pumpkin pie filling that you were eating. And then she served it with, she's really cute. She served it with some like cut up like a little board. She put like some goat cheese and some strawberries and some other little goodies. And we all basically just failed at crafting and ate a bunch of pumpkin. But one at <laughs> pumpkin snacks. Hummus and it was awesome. <laughs> we dominated the snack portion of the evening. Like we really dominated that part. Trader Joe's, I will say, is also great for getting fall and winter squashes at a very reasonable price. Oh, my God. Oh, totally. Yeah, so true. So that's my recommendation. So getting into what we're going to be talking about this week. Last week, we talked a lot about pandemic flux syndrome, burnout, self-care, and the different types of self-care, foundational self-care, restorative or replenishing self-care, and then a... self-preservation, right? And so Mm -hmm. with our guest this week, it actually worked in really well because one of the things, if you related to last week's episode about burnout and self-care, people tend to also have these two things go together, right? We've talked a lot about the gut-brain connection on this podcast in the past. If you've got some stress, burnout feelings going on, it's more than likely that you're also having some capacity of GI symptoms going on Mm -hmm. and reversing that. If you've had or if you have GI symptoms going on, that's a red flag that there is something upstream that has been going on for a while. And we know that there is a big connection between GI symptoms and issues and our stress and mental health. And taking this further, because this is what we talk about here, one of the biggest contributors to our stress and mental health, in addition to the pandemic, okay, like we know this, but specifically for the purposes of our audience and this podcast is our body image and relationship with food. Therefore, our body image and relationship with food is a major contributing factor to GI issues. And that is what we're going to be talking about with our guest this week. Yeah, with Marcy, I'm really excited because the topic one is very topical, right? Like everyone's kind of feeling it. Haha. <laughs> everyone's feeling it. And a lot of times people will come to us and say, I have all these GI issues. And also too, that's what leads them into elimination protocols in a lot of ways, right? Is having these very physical symptoms, which I mean, for being honest, that's what led me down that road. That's what led Dana down that road um, in a lot of ways. And then I think the thing that people we that we miss a lot is we go back to food as the way to manage and to to fix those GI issues whereas a lot of times it comes down to 
purely not giving ourselves enough and the stress around not giving ourselves enough and what that does and how that impacts our body. And Marcy talks about that really, really beautifully. And it's something that she um, specializes in, especially around disordered eating and eating disorders as well. But to be perfectly honest, you don't have to have an active eating disorder to have GI issues, as everyone here who probably listens knows, like <laughs> insert SIBO diagnosis here or, you know, GI GI issues um, at any point. But I think it is relevant to, to consider how our relationship with food, if you haven't already and you're having a lot of GI issues, I think it's relevant to consider how that might be impacting or in a very serious way, throwing like uh, throwing gasoline on the fire of your GI issues, right? Like sometimes the GI issues start first, then we head into elimination protocols and we do all these things and it gets worse. And that's, I think, a lot of times what contributes to that feeling of I'm either A, not doing the right protocol, the right elimination protocol, or two, I'm failing at them. And so it's my fault that I'm not doing them well. And therefore, that's why I'm having all these these GI issues and that's why they're getting worse and that's why it's getting all these things. Um, and I think honestly, that's that that's really, a, that. quite frankly, it sucks. It sucks that people feel this way. It sucks that this is happening and that you're having these feelings of, of um, inadequacy or not poor execution of something. And that's why you're having these GI issues when really it's the, it can be the elimination protocol itself and the anxiety and mental and emotional stress around executing them, around doing them, around, um, and even post, like when you reintroduce things, we've now created a real fear and anxiety around certain foods. And then now we're telling you like, oh, put them back in now. All la-di-da, like it's supposed to be cool. And it's, and you've spent this time having it ingrained how bad they are. And it primes you, you know, biologically for your body to be less primed to digest it. And then you have this reaction and then you think, oh, this food's not safe for me. And then you keep it out. And then we miss out on having a much more broader, nutrient-dense diet. And I think that's a huge opportunity lost by a lot of practitioners not thinking about it. And I think we, and it's, it's too bad because a lot of practitioners, functional, integrative practitioners, do think about how stress impacts our GI. They think about it. They talk about it. It's not something that's new. What's new is we don't think about, they're not considering body image or relationship with food as stressful. And for those who are struggling with body image and stress and food relationship, it's one of the most stressful things to be dealing with. And it's chronic and it's there and it's anxiety producing and it does all of the same things and creates that same mechanism for suppressed digestion, ultimately. And it kind of opens up the door for a lot of GI issues and GI disorders to kind of open up and come in. And I mean, think about it, like if you, which a lot of, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are because a lot of you are my clients or have been my clients is <laughs> if you are a person who identifies with, I'm constantly trying to figure out what is the solution to my health problems. Mm -hmm. And that has led you to try a lot of different protocols. First of all, we're not faulting you for that or shaming you for that because that is 
really the predominant narrative if you're in the functional medicine space is and that to be honest is what we are taught in graduate school as nutritionists it's you have this thyroid condition here's this anti-inflammatory elimination protocol you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO here's this elimination protocol and these supplements and all this stuff so it makes a lot of sense that if you get diagnosed with a health condition or if you think you have something like that, you're then doing all this research. Oh, here's this elimination diet. Here's this elimination. Here's this elimination diet. And the really hard thing is when you first start doing those protocols, at least in the first one to two weeks, you actually might feel better because there is that sense of, oh, I'm finally doing the right thing for my symptoms based on this research. But it doesn't take into account how many times you've done either this protocol before or how long you've been trying to figure this out and the stress that accumulates from all of that and all of those food rules that are now compounding to the point where you think, I can't eat anything but like carrots and zucchini and like boiled chicken and maybe chicken broth if I'm lucky. And then you would think with that, I should now be having no symptoms because there's nothing here that should be causing me anything and yet your symptoms are worse than ever and you feel like you have to restrict and restrict and restrict in order to have no more symptoms. But what you're not realizing is it's not the foods that are causing the symptoms. It's the stress that these other foods that we now view as the body views as a threat, whether that's a like a mental, I have heard that this food is inflammatory and bad for my condition, so I'm not going to eat that. I think that this is bad for me. Then when you eat that food, your body is on high alert. No, no, we're not supposed to be eating this. You then have a inflammatory response in the body, not because that food is inflammatory to you because of the chemical structure or makeup of that food, but because we think it's supposed to be not a good food for us. And so you combine that with, I've done all of these different protocols and this is good for me and this is not good for me. And plus just the stress of trying to figure out what is wrong with me and how am I going to fix it? All of that creates this not only inflammatory cascade, but puts you in fight or flight mode, which means by default, you are not in rest and digest, which goes back to what Christina was saying is your body is not primed to digest those foods. Therefore, your digestion is going to be compromised as a physiological level, creating all of these digestive symptoms. And now this is not to say that there are not very real bacterial imbalances or parasites or yeast infections or anything. I feel like we just, I mean, you guys know, but we always want to make that disclaimer. It's like, those are very real things that can be disrupting your gut microbiome and, you know, everything else that's going on. That's the reason we do stool testing in our practice. But this other piece of the stress of our body image and relationship with food is also a huge factor in our health and the stress cycle and our the inflammatory process that goes on in our bodies that creates these symptoms too. So we can't ignore that as a piece. So that is what we're digging into with Marcy today. We've only said her first name so far. It's Marcy Evans. She's a registered dietitian. She practices from a non-diet approach and she also specializes in people with disordered eating and eating disorders. So very similar to what we do. I think also too, one of the things that I want to include in Dana's disclaimer about about all this too is one we totally validate that you're having GI issues and we know that they're real and that they're happening to you and we validate that 100 percent 
all we're asking and all that we're saying and what this episode is really about is around sharing that it could be both. It could be both there's a bacterial imbalance and all these things and we have this stress and anxiety in our life overall plus we're throwing some fuel on the fire around our anxiety around food. And a lot of times the anxiety around food is very natural. It makes sense that you'd feel anxious around food. And it feels natural and it's 100% natural too that you would go towards eliminating foods or trying to figure out what's causing it by playing around with food because it's a GI issue. And we don't think about a lot of times, or I mean, I certainly didn't until I got formal training around the stress anxiety piece around um, GI issues. So just want to make sure that everyone knows that we're validating that it's real and that you're experiencing it. And we're just giving you another opportunity to look at another factor that might be playing a big role as well. So I'm excited. Yay. That's me clapping. <laughs> you had done a post recently or semi-recently about how diet culture can feel like a non-consensual abusive relationship even after you've broken up and when Dana and I saw that post we both said oh my gosh yes because we often describe that as like a play on the idea of diet culture is kind of like a bad boyfriend you just can't quit and how it really can feel like you're kind of breaking up with a narcissist And we would love for you to dive right into that quote and tell us more about it and what led you to put that out there. Oh, that's so interesting to hear back from the both of you, sort of how how that landed for you. Because a lot of times on social media, you put stuff out and it's, you know, a little bit of a two-way conversation with comments and things, but not fully. Uh, So I'm glad to know that that, you know, struck a chord. It, It came out of a conversation with a client. And what we were talking about is not just the side of sort of the breaking up that one does when they're, when you're, you're trying to do your best in leaving diet culture behind, you know, trying to change your own thinking and your own behaviors and navigating boundaries with, you know, friends or family members, you know, curating your Instagram feed, like doing all of those things. But there's a way in which diet culture without permission will continue to insert itself. Right. So like, you could be walking past a conversation that's, you know, happening in a grocery store. And then like all of a sudden diet culture is being thrown in your face. You know, you could be um, at, at dinner now that we're finally going out to dinner a little bit more these days. Right. And like your waitress all, all of a sudden says something and you're like, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> I did not want my meal coming with the side of diet culture. Thanks very much. And so there's I think one of the things that I talk about with my clients in terms of building that resiliency is that there is no way a single person can actually fully block out all of these forces that are just going to continue to come at you and come at you without your consent. And um, that's really tough. You know, I think that there is a lot of understandable frustration, anger, um, confusion for folks sort of feeling like they're doing their best to navigate this. And yet it continues to just keep coming at them, even though they're doing their part. Yeah. And I mean, it can be so discouraging because now when, when you're at that place, you're like, 
I worked so hard to get here and I've been doing so much of the internal work or, you know, like you're maybe seeing a therapist or working with a practitioner like any of the three of us, right? And it's like, this is not something I wanted to continue to engage in, but maybe you're not comfortable enough yet to have those boundary setting conversations with people. Or it's just like you said, it's a server at a restaurant and it's like, do I really need to have a boundaries conversation with this person, right? So what are some of the tips that you give people when they're in, you know, those kinds of different situations where it's like, I didn't consent to this, I didn't want to be here, but now I just have to kind of sit with it and exist with it. And the worst of it can happen when people then latch on, they're like, oh, let's have a cool conversation about this. So what what are some tips that you can give people to what they can do about that? Well, one of the things that I offer them is that I do offer them hope in that often, of course, not always, everybody's process is different, is that there tends to be a bit of a process for folks as they're they're navigating a new relationship to food and a new relationship to how they think about their bodies and exercise is that kind of towards the beginning, it can feel really fragile where it feels like almost anything is just gonna kind of like knock them off of their feet. And that's really normal, right? You're like developing some brand new skills, like that's completely normal. And then over time, what tends to happen is that folks tend to feel less thrown and more enraged and more angry. And then as we sort of continue to do our work together and sort of strengthen those inner resources and building that resiliency, folks tend to move away from being super angry to then sort of feeling almost like sort of neutral about it, like sort of seeing it for what it is. And maybe you feel like really bad for your mom who's still totally entrenched in diet culture. Um, And then it kind of goes from, from being neutral towards then being able to have some perspective and some compassion. And that doesn't mean you have to be like the most compassionate person all of the time, but all to say, like, if it's having a lot of emotional charge, these moments to like take heart that like in time, it tends to be less intrusive, less upsetting, less sort of rocking your world as, as you tend to get more and more steady in your process and feel more and more grounded in the choices that you're making for yourself and how you're living your life. And so that's sort of the first almost like, I don't know if it's not necessarily a skill, but sort of like perspective that I offer that this is like a normal part of the process and they're going to keep kind of evolving as well. And that these sort of non-consensual situations um, over time tend to throw us less. However, where it tends to remain quite tricky for folks, I would say, um, is in relationship, particularly with family members, because we have different expectations of our, you know, very sort of most intimate relationships, whether it's our our family we were born into or our chosen family, that 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 can um, remain a, a kind of painful place that we have this sort of hope and expectation that those folks are going to kind of come around and maybe honor some of those boundaries that you set. And that's a kind of another piece of work is having space where you can talk openly about your feelings and have a, a grief process as well and somewhere to put those feelings where those feelings can be seen and validated. And, you know, one of my jobs as a nutrition professional is to be gauging if my, if my client doesn't already have a mental health provider, a lot of times we're bringing a mental health provider on board because kind of beneath all of the behaviors of diet culture tend to be rooted, like some, some pretty intense feelings around self-worth and acceptance and longing. And that's also another piece that often, you know, needs to be, and, and then the the other piece is finding community, whether it's community, live community in person or online community, 
um, because as human beings, we're not meant to feel like outsiders and to feel alone. It causes a lot of distress and anxiety. That's how we're wired neurobiologically. And so another piece of it is having people that you um, feel hopefully, even if it's just one person, somebody that you feel completely safe around in terms of like how you're existing in your body and how you're choosing to treat your body. Um, because that la sense of lack of safety actually is why a lot of this stuff, letting go of diet culture can feel so incredibly scary and can induce a lot of pretty profound feelings of vulnerability. And for some folks, even related to um, trauma. That's such a great point. Um, because when we first started, when you first mentioned it, uh, when we first started talking about this, I, my first thought went to, well, what about for the people who are just starting to dip their toes in the idea of breaking up with diet culture and how dangerous this can feel and be like this environment can be for them as they're just trying to explore it. So I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit around for the people who are maybe new to this and thinking, maybe I do want to push back and maybe I do want to let go of this or this is a problem for me. And what can I do um, as I'm starting out in this journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think why it's so important for us, you know, as providers and those of us who are sort of in this anti-diet space to try to go about it in a way um, that, that doesn't come off as judgmental. And I think that we probably made some mistakes around that. And also it's why social media is so fraught. It's really difficult to have nuanced, thoughtful conversations in a soundbite. Um, but one of the things that I would offer your listeners is very similar to the work that I do with my clients. Like the vast majority of the people who I do and have worked with have a lot of ambivalence. Like they feel really um, unclear, uncertain. They feel a lot of different ways about sort of maintaining their status quo, whether it's in their eating disorder or um, in their kind of dieting world. And then they, they have these other parts of them that are like, but parts of this is are miserable for me. And like, I don't really love, you know, fill in the blank. And so one of the, the first things I do with my clients is that I try to give them lots of room, whether it's through journaling, through conversation with me, whether it's through reflection, to give themselves permission to do a thorough kind of analysis or just kind of getting it out. Like, what are the upsides of continuing to stick with dieting or kind of micromanaging my eating or having some rules, however they want to frame it? And then what are the downsides? And then what are the upsides of doing the work to try to move away from that kind of rule-based externally guided eating? You know, what are the upsides of trying to move away from that? And then what are the downsides of trying to move away from that? So those are actually four, four different questions, even though they might feel similar. And to have a lot of openness, a lot of not practicing that non-judgment and being really curious and really having some buy-in that all of those answers are completely legitimate. I don't think it does us any sort of a service to come in with an agenda of, well, we know that there's really one right answer and that's to like stop dieting. You know, to me, it's like, well, I can't make that decision for any of my clients. You know, this is, this is complex and usually has a lot of different elements for a person to consider. If it were that easy, a lot of other people would be just, you know, up and leaving diet culture behind, but that's not the way that it works. And so that's one just sort of practical place that I actually really think is super important to come before sort of the diving in and doing the things that like you think you should. It's like, well, just give yourself some room to think about this, right? Like, 
there's a lot more, especially on social media on this topic of um, sort of being anti-diet to where it's kind of funny because it's become a lot more sort of like popular and trendy. And it's like, well, we don't want to necessarily treat this just like another hashtag or just like another phase or thing, like allow yourself to sort of like sit back and do some reflecting to help yourself get a little bit more clear about sort of what your motivations might be. And also your hesitations, which are completely and totally valid and something to be explored again, like without, without that judgment. Right. I love your point of how it's, it's so much deeper than a hashtag or like so much deeper than just like a caption that you see on someone's Instagram post, even though the way that most people engage with content on Instagram now is they just like look at the picture and they're like, okay, I'm done. They don't read any of the comments or anything. So like you said before, there's very little room for nuance, but like you mentioned, there's so, so many layers to this and all of these layers have another layer of like stress and anxiety and everything behind it because of another thing that you mentioned about just feeling like unsafe of can I really let go of this? And I love your idea of doing like a pros and cons list, right? And asking yourself this series of questions of is it really worth it for me to continue in these old patterns that I know haven't been serving me, right? Like what are the benefits of continuing to do this? So we're not all just saying like, this has been horrible for me. You know, this is the worst thing ever because if it was the worst thing ever and there were no upsides, you would never have continued doing that, you know? So I think validating people's experiences of whatever this pattern is, it was clearly a coping mechanism or something that you were using to deal with something else in your life. But so then Mm -hmm. speaking of all those different layers, what we really wanted to talk about with you today is the intersections of having a complicated relationship with food and gut disorders, because this is another layer that can keep people wanting to stay in diet culture. So, and this what we want to be really clear about here so we don't like lose people listening is like, wait, but I don't have a diagnosed eating disorder, right? Of this exists on a huge spectrum, right? You don't have to have a diagnosable eating disorder or severe disordered eating to experience gut issues that stem from a complicated relationship with food. So can you dive into that a little bit more? I'm happy to dive into this. I, as you know, I love this topic and I know that both of you love this topic too. This is an area of research and study that has become really important to me and that I've spent a lot of time on over the past really four to five years because I was seeing it so consistently in my clinical practice. And, um, you know, I will offer the caveat that my lens does tend to be framed through the lens of eating disorders because that's most of the work that I do. And it's where a lot of the research is specifically sort of looking at specific diagnoses. Um, However, I'm really, really, really glad that you gave that um, caveat, Dana, because I think that we can frame this much more generally because we actually do see these symptoms across the board. And I've seen it clinically across the board. And we can have a whole other conversation about um, the problems with diagnoses and why they're problematic and and all of that. So let's just say like diagnosis really um, is not the point. What we're interested in exploring together is what do we see generally and thematically like in our clinical practices? So one of the things that I was noticing is that as my clients, because I work outpatient, were getting so much better in their recovery from their eating disorder to where their eating was like pretty normal, like pretty balanced. Like they've done all of this hard work 
And yet they were having these really kind of unremitting, uncomfortable GI symptoms, like pretty severe bloating to not being able to go to the bathroom real regularly, sort of alternating between constipation and diarrhea, you know, burping, reflux, all of that kind of stuff. And it was like, gosh, this is really a bit baffling for me because there's sometimes, this is a little bit simplistic, a bit of a narrative within the eating disorders field of like, oh, you get better from your eating disorder and all of that gut stuff is going to get better. And I was like, well, that's not actually true all of the time. It's true some of the time, but like a good portion of my clients, um, their GI systems were either morphing or they were just kind of staying the same. And I was really puzzled as to why that was. So I did some cold consulting with a good friend of mine who's a digestive health expert, Lauren Deer. Um, she's kind of developed this subspecialty in eating disorders. And I've developed a little bit of a subspecialty in digestive health because of the work that we started doing. And I then started going into the research and realizing, oh, the common thread between individuals who tend to struggle with mental health stuff like anxiety, depression, more susceptibility to eating disorders, and also tend to have these kind of GI symptoms that seem to just not get better that there's this Venn diagram between these two. And in that shared space was this common thread between temperament of anxiety and depression, where folks tend to just have a system. In particular, my experience, I tend to see this a lot more with the more anxious, perfectionistic kind of rigid, rigid types. Um, I have all the compassion, non-judgment, because I also have my hand raised, because that's the direction that my temperament leans as well, is that... Um, those of you who might have your hand raised, is that our system tends to be much more upregulated. And so the way that I explain it to people is if you have a stressed out system, you likely have a stressed out gut because we know the nervous system runs between our head brain and our gut brain, that, that there's your communication pathways. And so there is no way that we can separate our mental health from our gut health. Um, and now there's this whole other layer um, that I'll just mention briefly, and that is that we know for folks who have a history of manipulating their intake, maybe using eating disorder behaviors or being on really restrictive diets, is that that does alter the gut microbiome. And what the research is beginning to get much more clear on is that those changes in the gut microbiome have a number of effects, including negative and problematic and persistent gut health symptoms, like similar to the ones that I named. So you can, you know, get yourself in a little bit of this stuck cycle and that, you know, if you're having these gut challenges and you try to go on an elimination diet and you've kind of been on every diet in the world in an attempt to manage your symptoms, you can also be kind of setting yourself up to have some persistent symptoms um, by altering that gut microbiome from its kind of more, more ideal state. And it's interesting because Dana and I are both integratively trained and that's our background. And so a lot of times, at least for me, I'm not going to speak for Dana, but for me, I used to work for a functional doctor's office. And so a lot of times I would see people doing elimination diets and then because they had GI issues and they had all this, all these different stuff and they would feel temporarily better. But then when I was trying to reintroduce and kind of expand their diet, that's when I would run into these stop gaps where I started realizing, oh, wow, you know what? Why aren't they willing to open up and eat more food? Isn't that the whole point of this is to expand and eat more and be able to have a broader diet? And so that was kind of interesting to me. So I think I saw it kind of 
from the back end. And that's what led me into kind of thinking about, well, how is these types of protocols and these types of things impacting people's mental health? Like what thread are we pulling? And then you see that Venn diagram of, oh yeah, all of those clients that I had are anxious type A people who love a good food list, who just literally would walk into my office and say, tell me what I can eat or not eat to feel better. And I understand their desperation. I was once (laughs) that person with an undiagnosed um, um, chronic health condition. So can you explain a little bit more about how those anxious types or how those depressive types can have that happen? Sure, I'll do my best. And um, and again, feel free to chime in um, because it's interesting to think about how we take some of these like fairly complicated anatomical and physiological processes and, and have them make sense in a way that is sort of, you know, meaningful to, you know, the average person who doesn't necessarily want to geek out on the science like we do. Um, but our, one, our bodies are incredible and we have these communication pathways via our nervous system. And so we know that there's this nervous system that is connected, connecting kind of our, like I said, our head brain and our gut brain. So we have these two different nervous system pathways, but they're in communication with one another. And one of the most important nerves that we know about that kind of facilitates this bi-directional communication is called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve has a lot of important functions as it relates particularly to digestion. And one of the things that's really interesting about the vagus nerve is that the majority, not all of it, but the majority of the communication pathway goes from gut to brain as opposed to brain to gut. And one of the things that is really interesting about that is that that's where we pick up a lot of our information about our emotional landscape. So we, you know, think about our nervous system as communicating sensory information, right? So our eyes are picking up visual information from the world around us. So are our ears, we get that through, you know, touch through our fingers and our toes. And similarly, our nervous system, particularly located in our gut, is picking up information from our internal landscape and communicating information to our head brain. And so when we say things like, oh, I have a gut feeling or sort of my intuition, like that's all related to what's happening in our gut. So we have all this emotional information that's getting communicated up towards the head. One of the things that I find really interesting is that researchers have some hypotheses but aren't entirely clear in terms of what happens in the case of say irritable bowel syndrome, which is a really great example of sort of this collection of symptoms that don't seem to have a real, real clear cause or necessarily like one single treatment, you know, like celiac disease, it's not fun, but more straightforward where we have to get rid of the gluten. Whereas with IBS, that's not the case, but there are some hypotheses that um, what happens in folks with IBS is that from the gut to the head, the gut is deciding to communicate way too much information. So there's all this stuff happening in our gut and the gut's like, oh, that gurgle, that's nothing. I don't need to tell the brain about that. Oh, that little gas moving through. I don't need to tell the brain about that. But in folks with IBS, it's like an over-communicator. And then, then what happens in the head brain is that you have this part of the brain that's sensing whether or not the information coming from the gut is, is needed or not needed. And that part of the brain is also an overdrive. So not only is there an overabundance of communication happening from the gut into the head, but in in addition to that, the head is like, oh, this is really important. Morning, morning, morning. So your system is like 
pretty overloaded. And so this is exactly why we have to work, not just on thinking about what foods you eat or not eat, but what is your experience of eating like, and how do we develop a little bit more ease with what is sometimes like a painful overload of information. And there's no diet that's going to fix that. That's going to be work on trying to help down-regulate your nervous system and help your nervous system to be a little bit more settled and, and a little bit more settled while you're eating. Again, that vagus nerve does things like help your diaphragm to be able to relax, help the pressure in your stomach to be able to drop down, to make room for food, like to be able to cue to the rest of the body that like digestive enzymes should be secreted. But if it's managing loads and loads of anxiety, it's going to be a hard time kind of taking care of all of those other tasks. So, so that's why I tend to focus on not just, you know, as a dietitian or as a nutrition professional, sort of what a person is eating, but what the eating experience is like and how we develop a little bit more um, flexibility and ease with discomfort. So we're not adding on sort of stress about the discomfort on top of the discomfort, if that makes sense. And, you know, there's, there's another component to this too of, okay, so we're not just, you know, trying to control what we're eating because that can add a whole nother stress, right? And trying to manage and activate the this other component of the nervous system, down-regulating it, right? So how we're eating, but then also thinking about the other component of, and this is where the, you know, the intersection of gut disorders and eating disorders, or, you know, anybody along the complicated relationship with food spectrum, how much stress do you have around what you should and shouldn't be eating? And how much due to all of the elimination protocols you've done in the past and all of the research that you've probably done around what foods are quote best for IBS or insert your gut condition here, how much are you thinking yourself into those symptoms, right? And this is not, to be clear, this is not saying it's all in your head. It's not, right? Like constipation is not all in your head, right? Like <laughs> these other things, all these symptoms are not all in your head, but how much of a component is I feel like I shouldn't be eating beans because I've heard beans have too much fiber and phytates and all this other stuff that I'm pretty sure they're going to give me symptoms. Is it the reaction that your body is having to the beans themselves or is it this nervous system response that we're having to, I shouldn't be eating this food because I know it's going to give me symptoms or is it both? Because it can be both as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And it creates a lot of complexity. And, you know, one of the things that I try to make super clear whenever I talk about this, and I know that the two of you do such a nice job with this as well, like this is no blaming, this is no shaming, this is really hard to navigate. And, you know, I don't necessarily need my voice to be another voice of like telling people how and what to do. Um, but as an opportunity for folks to reflect on, hey, this is really complicated. And I probably some really well-intentioned folks have given you food lists and done tests and all of the things that might have been unintentionally creating, creating some more confusion for you. Um, but that question, you know, that you're really speaking to sort of how do we parse this out together can really take some time, which is why that, um, that gentleness piece and that piece at the forefront that I think really has to be foundational, which is this whole process. We have to be trying to bring the stress down, trying to bring sort of the, the level of kind of being amped up down. And, and one of the things that you said, Dana, actually made me think about some research that I was reading more, much more recently. So, so Dana, you made such a good point. And I, and I really appreciated when you were saying like, 
we are not saying this is all in your head. Um, not at all. These are very real symptoms. And so one of the research studies that I read recently really caught my attention because it said in this particular study, and granted it was a reasonably small number of people who were in this study, but the researchers pulled out this thread that the folks who tended towards having a lot of physical, uncomfortable physical symptoms in relationship to their eating tended to be higher on the scales of what is called somatization. And what somatization is, and this is just sort of my way of paraphrasing it, is you feel emotions very strongly in your body. And I will say, I have my hand raised. I feel things very strongly in my body. When I'm feeling anxious, my stomach feels upset, right? If I'm about to give a big talk that I'm having a lot of feelings about, I am running to the bathroom multiple times before I get in front of that microphone. Like I feel my nervousness. I feel my anxiety. I know when I feel anger, like my heart is pounding. Um, and it's interesting because my partner is very much not that way. We could be sitting on a couch watching a very intense show and I'll turn to him and say, oh my gosh, my heart is pounding. Is your heart pounding? And he's like, no, it's a show. Whereas like my, my whole nervous system is totally responding to what we're watching. And so that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It just is, it's just the difference. But those of us who tend to feel things very strongly in our body tend towards having these more functional symptoms. And again, that's so that's a way to kind of inventory. Is this the food? Is this my feelings? Is this whatever? And if you think, well, I'm a person who tends to feel things pretty strongly, then you're maybe a person who tends to have maybe a bit of a stronger response if you're feeling stressed about what you're eating or you're worried about whether or not the meal is going to make you gassy. Like you have a system that might be setting you up to be having some of those physical symptoms, not because you're making it up in your head, but because um, we can experience things very strongly in our body in relation to, to our emotional landscape. So even just reflecting on that aspect and seeing whether or not that resonates for you can be one way to have a clue of, are there pieces of this that are related to my temperament, related to my wiring, related to kind of how I am in the world um, that I, I think can be useful. I think it's so important to bring that component in too, because it's something that not very many people would think of, especially when you think about the most common paradigm of if you have gut symptoms, Here's an elimination diet, right? Like that is pretty much the leading paradigm, especially in the functional medicine world to you've got gut stuff, you got to cut out all these potentially inflammatory fruits, right? But nobody emphasizes the potentially. They're just like, this is it, you got to go. But this is also what really frustrates me about the diagnosis of IBS itself is that it doesn't actually tell me anything except for the fact that the doctor now has validated that you're having these symptoms, right? And this is what is really hard getting a diagnosis of IBS as a clinician who's working with someone, right? Because it's like, okay, well, so I know your doctor has validated that you have gut symptoms, right? But I don't, even with that, like I can assume what symptoms you might have with the most common ones, right? But that doesn't tell me anything about where these symptoms are coming from. If you get a thyroid diagnosis, we know it's coming from the thyroid. We don't know if there's something else going on or what's contributing to that, but we at least know there's like one system that's going wrong. With the GI system and IBS, we know, okay, it's there's some component of this that's manifesting in GI symptoms, but we don't know where it's coming from. Is it from the somatic experience? Is it real relationship with food? Is it some other kind of multitude of factors that are going on? And so 
it's understandable why people are so frustrated when they try and do these elimination protocols. They're like, okay, number one diet for IBS, FODMAPs, let me do that. Yeah. <laughs> for everyone who can't see, Marcy was just like, no, no. And not because I think FODMAPs is horrible and it is sometimes helpful for people, but this sort of way in which it's become automated is like highly, highly, highly Right, especially because most doctors don't tell their patients that you're not supposed to be on a low FODMAP diet forever because it can lead to a lot of worsening of your GI symptoms in the long term. Yes. And really, really, really skilled digestive health experts are explicit about this is short term. This is temporary. We want to reintroduce as many foods as possible. But when you couple that with somebody who also has a complex relationship to food where they're working out relational self-esteem sort of internal stuff in their relationship to food and can grab on to the elimination piece. And you have a provider who hasn't taken care to really doing a good job of explaining and also following through. It is really, 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 really problematic. It's dangerous too, because people don't then think about how, how they're going into their meals and how that's impacting it. And so I understand the desire for someone who latches on to literally anything that they're telling them that's going to give them some comfort because it is so uncomfortable. And the minute, like Dana mentioned, that you got that validation, the minute you're thinking, okay, great, I now have this. Now I want to do something about it and I want to feel better. And so now I'm going to latch on to whatever's available to me. And granted, they get, they feel better, right? Like you feel better in the moment, in that initial, the, that initial stage. But then over the long term, the symptoms come back, they start creeping back in, they become maybe even a little bit more quote unquote flexible with their low FODMAPs and then they think that's the reason why and then insert right back into the disordered eating relationship where next thing you know, you're saying to yourself, oh, it's my fault. It's because I didn't stick to it long enough when you were really never meant to stay on a low FODMAP diet for any period of time. And so that's where there's that, that huge misconception. But since we're so ingrained in this culture of elimination and cut it out, cut it out, cut it out, that everyone latches onto this and we ignore that information. And especially when you look at it from a long-term GI health perspective, it can be so unbelievably damaging to go long-term. So it's almost kind of like Dana and I, before we had this, this conversation with you, we were saying, which one is it, the chicken or the egg? You know, is it the GI issues that are that are leading you to elimination protocols and creating the disordered eating and making all this anxiety? Or is it the eating disorder that's causing the GI issues and making you anxious all at the same time? And But I would love if you could provide us with some common conditions or symptoms that you see a lot for like a lot of your clients that have this yes. experience. Oh my gosh, both of you have made so many good points. Again, nobody, and no, nobody listening can see us, but I'm like, my head's about to fall off. I'm like nodding along. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I just feel like, we have a lot of responsibility as providers and those of us who really want to work as integratively as possible that our, our job is to help plans to, to understand all of the kind of conditioning that happens, you know, socially or on podcasts or the article or blah, 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 that, that a, a truly integrative approach is going to hold all of those things in mind, including the relational piece, including the mental health piece, including the sort of how is this picture going to look, you know, over a very long period of time and not just at sort of the immediate introduction of a protocol. And I'm, I'm really excited because I'm invited to give a talk to an integrative health um, practice that does a lot of elimination diets. And um, one of the staff members has followed my work and invited me to come um, speak. And, I, and I'm really excited because I think I'm able to speak to this idea of 
sort of having a much bigger um, clinical assessment and looking at temperament and personality and mental health history and all of that. And then we can give like a really, truly um, kind of integrative and really thoughtful and really, um, yeah, kind of multifaceted way to approach the work. So that was a little bit of a tangent, not an answer to your question, Christina, but um, in terms of the symptoms that I tend to see most, so I tend to see a lot of like discomfort with fullness, where it sort of feels like the food doesn't feel like it's digesting right. It sort of feels like it's sort of sitting there. People who are having um, um, discomfort with reflux, um, acid reflux, sort of pain, sort of this generalized, like my stomach feels uncomfortable. So we have to do a lot of sorting out, like, is it discomfort? Is it loading? Is it pain? You know, when are you noticing these symptoms? Um, and then a, a lot of difficulty with elimination. So whether it's, it's tends to be on the constipation end of things, um, but some clients will vacillate between constipation and diarrhea. But I would say from top to bottom, those are sort of the most, most common things that I see. Um, you know, and kind of speaking back to Dana's point about the IBS, you know, which is, is such a frustrating, <laughs> frustrating diagnosis for so many reasons. Um, but it's interesting because sometimes a doctor will diagnose IBS, but then we find as the nutrition professional that the doctor actually hasn't done their work because the diagnosis of IBS is a diagnosis of last resort. It means that we have like eliminated every other possibility and we're left with sort of like, I don't know. And, um, some people do truly have IBS, but they haven't necessarily, their doctors haven't done the due diligence to rule all the other stuff out. Um, so a lot of times I have clients come to me and they say, you know, I, I have IBS. Um, and you know, this other area kind of, that's become a little bit of a passion area of mine is, is related to pelvic floor dysfunction. And I don't know whether or not we'll have time or whatever to, to, to delve into that, but those are the symptoms that I most commonly see in my practice. And it's, we're usually working at it from lots of different angles. I'm a big fan as much as I can um, work with my clients, medical providers to do as much testing as possible, because it just gives us more information to parse out like what's what. And that way we're not just sort of diving into random elimination protocols. We actually have more data to go on. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to like to do really thorough clinical assessment, get as much testing done as I'm able to do, and then kind of problem solve together to understand you know, what, you know, both of you were speaking to earlier, which is identifying what is causing what, and that can be a really tricky puzzle because for most people, it's both. Most people that I work with, it's both. It's, it's both the digestive health stuff that has either been predated and sort of led itself to some disordered eating patterns, or as a result of the disordered eating patterns has actually kind of created these symptoms. And so um, we're, we are um, most typically working on, um, working on the eating disorder recovery, working on kind of the challenging relationship with food recovery as we're working on the GI stuff same time. You know, that's one of the things that I actually think there's been some improvement in the, in the GI community, sort of kind of the more medical community where historically it was like, oh, this person has an eating disorder, like almost as if it's all in their head, treat their mental illness. And I'm like, but you do understand that there are very real physiological consequences to having an eating disorder that then needs to be treated. <laughs> you know, it's this very sort of bizarre, nonsensical response. So I feel that often my role is to be a very, very vocal advocate for my clients where I'm requesting testing, I'm asking for labs, I'm requesting follow-up, and I'm also sort of jumping in saying, please don't do the food piece. I've got that. It, it, could you respect that and allow that to be 
sort of something that we're navigating, um, which I find, I don't know if you both find this, that anytime you mention specifically eating disorder, a lot of medical providers feel so frightened that they're actually quite happy for me to take that on. I'm like, you know, I, I can handle that piece, you know, but if you can communicate sort of the, the findings of your assessment and testing, um, but it's uh, it requires a lot of a lot of advocacy on the part of the of the clinician as well. If we're particularly if we're working at this this intersection between the two, right? And it can be so hard because especially if you're you have a client who's working with a GI specialist. Typically, the GI specialist will think, "Oh, I'm going to take care of all the gut stuff," and it's like, "Okay, well, I'm the dietitian here. Okay, I'll take care of the food stuff, and we can work together, right?" But at least in my area, in DC, a lot of the gut specialists that I've run into and the clients that work with me, they're very like, I'm just going to take care of it. And I'm like, okay, but my clients have to wait months and months and months to get in with you. So, and your appointments are astronomically expensive, which like you definitely deserve to charge what you think you're worth, right? But at the same time, if they can't get in with you for six months, we're not just going to sit on our hands and not do anything. And then this is, you know, the complete other side of the spectrum. If you're then in that situation of, okay, now I'm seeking out someone else to work with. If you're on Instagram, TikTok, social media, whatever, and someone says they're a gut health expert, but all they're doing is handing out elimination diets as if they're Prevacid or something. They're not actually a gut health expert because just doing an elimination diet can't fix your gut symptoms unless... It's only a food allergy or it's only celiac disease. And even then, there's still so much damage that has been done to your body, not even talking about the mental health side that you're going to have to recuperate from with some kind of like mental health and physical health healing protocol to make sure that you don't develop those fear foods, which then can create the anxiety around foods that can create more gut symptoms. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. You summarized it beautifully. And, and it really speaks to how complex this is. I love the comparison that you had made earlier, Dana, between digestive health stuff versus like thyroid, which isn't to say that thyroid conditions aren't, aren't challenging and upsetting and difficult in their own right. But you just have, it's, it's, a, it's a much more complex ball of wax with GI stuff because often we're looking at symptoms and we're trying to get beneath the symptoms to understand what's driving the symptoms. Um, and it, and it really, you know, I hope that this conversation also allows people who are dealing with these kind of complex chronic GI symptoms to have so much compassion for yourself to be like, this isn't, this isn't easy. There are a lot of different pieces to the puzzle here to, to try to understand and to try to work with. And so just, you know, being as gentle with oneself, I think is so, so, so important. I think that's such an important point to make about about being gentle and compassionate for yourself. And I hope that this podcast is leading itself as a permission for people to look at their GI symptoms as more than just localized in their gut and that there's so much more to it and so many layers to it. And that if you've done the elimination protocol with some success and had some relief um, to then think to yourself at that point, okay, what other aspects of this do I need to work on now? If I've relieved some of that, okay, and I've figured out maybe something, maybe there is like celiac disease or or a true food allergy or a food intolerance, how do I then kind of look at, all right, how do I make sure that my mental health is taken care of? How do I make sure that I'm not pulling this other thread at the same time that I'm 
that I've now undone this other piece of it. And so I think it's just such a complex puzzle. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk about how some how some people can feel like they can't fully break up with diet culture or elimination diets. Um, and that in some ways they feel like this choice is inaccessible to them. And that choice meaning breaking up with diet culture and having a non-diet, anti-diet approach um, because they have or experiencing gut symptoms or gut disorders or maybe even have a, a full-blown chronic health condition. So how do you help people overcome this type of roadblock in your practice? Oh, that is such a great question. That's really, really interesting. You know, I the way that I tend to work um, with my clients is to come from a place of curiosity. And you've heard me really use that word repeatedly. Um, so if someone was to say to me, Marcy, I cannot embrace anti-diet because I have this, you know, these chronic GI symptoms, I would say, oh, this is super interesting. Tell me more about what you mean about anti-diet. And a lot of times that's where I, I go with my clients is a lot of times we use shared language and assume we mean the same thing. And then we realize that like our ideas and sort of what we've absorbed or what we've kind of transferred onto these words is like uniquely ours. And again, that's not right, wrong, good, bad. That just is what we do as human beings. And I also think it's really important, similar to the sort of brief conversation that we had about diagnoses is that we're not getting too caught up in sort of our, our language and the precision of things and things being really rigid and rule bound. So often kind of what I'm looking for as a counselor is, is this sort of a, a familiar pattern in which the tendency, because diet culture has trained us, is to think very rigidly and very sort of confined about what we mean when we say a thing. And um, what I encourage people to think about is one, creating their own definition and that like, well, nobody's forcing you to sort of leave diet culture behind. This is about what you want. And this is about you reclaiming what kind of relationship you want to food. And being anti-diet culture doesn't mean, hey, I might have some kind of loose um, kind of guidelines that I follow, or maybe they're not so loose. Maybe I have some guidelines that I follow that keep me really well in terms of my eating. Well, to me, that's not the same thing as um, as sort of saying, you know, I'm on board with diet culture and I'm all about diets, you know, but that's where we get into semantics and have a really interesting conversation about, you know, what do we actually mean there? And to me, um, being kind of quote unquote anti-diet is about someone reclaiming their own relationship to food and being able to decide what works for them and what that allows them to feel at their best, not just physically, certainly physically, but also mentally and emotionally. And if that's saying, hey, I don't eat a ton of apples because I notice that when I do, I always feel crappy. Great, you know, that's fine. Um, so that's that's kind of where I would be interested to go with my client is, um, you know, what, what maybe has been kind of given to you in terms of anti-diet that might feel like a similar repetition in terms of other diets that you've been on and how do we reject that mentality altogether? Love that. I think that is a fantastic place to close out this episode and give people a lot to think about when they're driving or walking or doing laundry or whatever they are doing while listening to this podcast. So thank you so, so much for coming on. Can you please tell everybody all of the places that they can find you on social media, your website, and even talk about the stuff that you do for other clinicians as well, if you'd like. Sure. I'm um, first want to say thank you so much for this conversation. I actually, this is an aside, but would love it if we had more conversations between 
kind of the integrative community as well as the eating disorder community, because I feel like there are beautiful ways to straddle both of those communities. And there's been some, I think, funny, funniness um, historically around sort of like, you know, finger pointing. But in reality, I think that like there is some beautiful crossover that if we're going to help people with eating disorders and gut issues, we have to embrace. I actually don't think we have a way around it. Um, but so glad to be here. Love this conversation. I'm pretty easy to find online. All of my social media handles are Marcy RD. So M-A-R-C-I-R-D. And my website is MarcyRD.com. And if folks are interested in some freebies, you can go to my website and um, under the client drop down, um, you can see a list of free resources. And I have a couple of different meditations and I should be actually getting a new one up there that's geared to hypnosis for um, the gut brain axis. And we didn't even get to talk about gut directed hypnotherapy, which is my, um, another little side obsession. Um, and yeah, I have, um, some online courses. I do a lot of clinical training. And so my wheelhouse is, is eating disorders counseling. So I have a couple of online courses. One is on nutrition counseling for eating disorders. One is on body image concerns and working with negative body image. And that's for clinicians. And then the third course I have looks at this intersection between digestive disorders and eating disorders. And in fact, I have recently did a webinar that's sort of a shorter one-off where I talk about a, a lot of what we covered today. Um, so all of that can be accessed through my website, but is ultimately on a teachable page. So that's where you can find me. I think the moral of the story is we have to have you back on to talk about hypnotherapy and gut Yeah, disorders. totally. I would love it. I would yes. love it. We can definitely <laughs> arrange that. I think it has to happen. This oh my is god. My planner. Should we Oh my god, should we should we talk Live about it? Unboxing. <laughs> Live unboxing. Oh my god. Dana's planner game, guys. We're we're gonna open it up and look at it together. It's really too bad that we're not recording this video because I know the recording of the video would be great. But yeah, this is so much fun. Oh my god, it's beautiful. Oh my god, I want to get it, even though I know I won't use it. That's the thing about planners, is they're beautiful and I love them, but I never use them. What kind of cover do you think I got? Or did you see it? <laughs> is it Harry Potter? Is it anime? <laughs> oh my it's god, like it's so Celeste. pretty. Oh my god. Yes. On the side. Oh, I can't wait to dig into this later.